this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Ziaf and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week, we rescued an album from... Aww, uh, like a little puppy. Yeah, from Perilous Extinction. No one would have ever heard this record if we didn't talk about it, Jay. No. That's, not, that's not true. Not true. Not for this one. Not, the, not for this record. So here's what happened. Here's the story. Here's the long and short of it, as they say. We had a we had a listener suggestion poll back in July. Well, it was our, our July poll went up the twelfth of July, and we had nine records. The winner ended up being Verbena, but it was a close race. Verbena just edged out the Posies, frosting on the beater. Well, it just so happened that we ended up having an empty spot in our schedule unexpectedly. And we needed a record to review, so we thought, hey, that Frosting on the Beater record, that almost won. Why don't we listen to that one? Boom. There it was. And we also have a backstory with the Posies years ago, back in, like, I'm going to guess 2014, maybe? Uh, We interviewed Ken Stringfellow when he was promoting a new solo record called Danzig in the Moonlight. I think was the name of the album and we talked to him about that record we touched a little bit on the history of the posies during that episode and if i recall correctly jay we also had some technical difficulties which caused us to uh stop and start the episode like three times <laughs> as we were recording it really? i think he was like he was like traveling oh yeah and uh he, he was, was like, driving back from the studio or something on a cell phone yeah yeah so, for future uh, guests, please try to be in one location the entire time, and don't drive when you talk to us. It's not a good, it's not a good thing to do. We want your attention on the road. So yeah, we rescued the Posies' "Frosting on the Beater," the 1993 album, the third album by the Posies. Jay, you were familiar with this record before reviewing it, correct? Yes, I have. I had this record and is it Dear 23? That's the one that came out in 1990, yes. So yeah, I I had both. Okay. I'm actually not familiar with much of the catalog beyond this record. I think I've listened to Amazing Disgrace, which is the 96 album. And I've probably sampled some songs from their overall discography. But for some reason, I've, I've not really gotten into the whole catalog with this band yeah i haven't either and this has been a record where i think i i felt like i needed to have it and i've listened to it from time to time but this is probably the most i've ever focused on it right really like scrutinized it and listened intently to it yeah same with me i've owned it i I probably picked it up used somewhere along the way and I, i did not buy it new i did was not aware of the band at the time of the release, other than maybe having the single in the um, uh, radio station that we worked at, but you weren't even there yet in 1993, and I would have just been just starting out, so I was not paying attention to what was going on. 
back then. So uh, probably missed it completely. And Amazing Disgrace in 96, I remember when that came out. I remember that album being in the studio. And I remember playing the, I think we played, I want to say Daily Mutilation was the single that we played a lot, but I'm not sure exactly what the single was for that record. Don't recall. Anyway, we so we did get comments back on when we ran the poll back uh, last month on this record. Whitney Beeler said the winner has got to be the Posies. It wasn't. Uh, it's in my top 30 ever. Ever. Said I like the Cunningham's too, and I also own the Verbena record. It only has a couple memorable songs. Uh, and then Keith Sir said, I agree. The Posies Frosting on the Beater is a true gem and one of the best power pop albums of the 90s, if not the best. So just a heads up, we'll be getting into power pop of the 90s in an upcoming roundtable. So maybe we can figure out what the best power pop album of the 90s is. We have many to choose from. Now, on the other side of it, Scott Hallgram said, I choose, Ver- no, I'm sorry. He said, I have Ver- the Verbena album. I don't care for it. Maybe you guys can help me figure out what the deal is. Please, God, no posies. Oh. Scott, where'd the, where'd wow. the posies hurt you? <laughs> we really failed him. Yeah. Between the two, the two picks. Yeah, Scott's going to be pretty annoyed after this one. Sorry, Scott. So you can join us at Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash dig me out. You can check out uh, our polls, which uh, go up monthly, and then also our bonus content, which includes the first episode of Dig Me Out 80s is available to download. That went up on the 9th of August. Our review of Nuclear Days by the Vapors. And of course, you can get entered into our quarterly giveaways we'll be giving something away very soon and announcing what that is even sooner and all that kind of stuff just over at uh, patreon so jay we've already touched on the history of this band back when we did the ken stringfellow interview so we don't need to do that so let's just jump into talking about frosting on the beater you, you actually got to spend some time with it ruminate on it I tell did. me one thing you liked about it i like it when you play this record loud I think that's maybe what I was uh, not doing right before. Um, yeah, it's it's a different record when you play it loud. I think when you when you kind of got it on in the background and you're just listening to it at a you know kind of a soft volume while you're doing something else, or even if you don't, I've no, you know noticed with maybe better equi- uh, listening uh, equipment mm-hmm. that I'd enjoyed it a lot more because you get that meaty bass. Um, that's on the record and the the nuance of the guitar tones and it just adds this depth and heaviness to it that I hadn't I hadn't heard before when I had previously listened to it. I think that's the part that struck me revisiting it. Um, just that contrast between these super sugary melodies and harmonies, uh, lots of hooks, but then there's a weight behind this record that I think some power pop albums suffer from they get a little too like shimmery and right like high end uh, like in terms of frequency a little too bright and then when you mix that with the the harmonies and just the overall pop vocals it's just isn't quite power enough and this to me is very much about combining power with pop so uh just the overall approach to the record you know i 
know. I think the the songwriting was the other thing I started to notice um, more than I had in the past in terms of there's a good there's a good amount of variety here. You know, there's some mm-hmm. formulas you hear every other song, but there's a couple you know tracks where they you know they try some different things and they're a little bit longer and. I think that was the other part that I that I picked up on, and I'm starting to understand a little better too as I get a little older and I listen to more Beatles and <laughs> listen to more bands. And this is a band that you, I think, appreciate. The more you listen to music, the more I, I think you can appreciate what they do. So those are a couple of the highlights on on this most recent uh, listen for me. I think that observation about the depth is really key for me because I agree with you. Sometimes when I listen to power pop albums, it's a concoction of a lot of really catchy melodies and really tasty guitar tones but there's nothing to really like dig into whereas Mm -hmm. there's like a almost like a darkness to some of this record that is not really what you would expect you might hear it in some like classic cheap trick where there's some you know darkness to some of those lyrics and while they can be super catchy and and sweet and fluffy, they can also do some interesting. You know, when I think of like uh, "Surrender," you know, mm-hmm. th- that's a deceptively sweet song. Yeah, and you know, when you listen to songs like "Flavor of the Month" and and "Definite Door," there's that, and then the closing track coming right along. There, there's a lot of interesting shades to this record. Say goodbye and family back you promise to silently leave a note on your kitchen table this is all you will ever be so hope for a better place and a better time and a better As far as the one thing that I really like, um, obviously the melodies. You know, the if you when you take "Dream All Day," "Solar Sister," "Flavor of the Month," and "Definite Door," the melodies on those four songs alone sound like they have existed forever. Like they're yep. so catchy and yep. so timeless sounding. Like I could imagine them actually being, you know, Beatles songs or Big Star songs or Cheap Trick songs. Like they just sound like they have existed for for all of time, yeah. Uh, which is just it's really crazy how they are able to do it four times on this record. Most bands can't do it once that are trying to pull this off. I, I wanted to hit on the dream all day because uh, I forgot to mention the intro. So I got the record. The two I mentioned, I have. I didn't get them until maybe the mid to late nineties, right? Um, used or you know, 
cutout bin. I think Deer 23 might have been in a cutout bin. Um, and when I heard Dream All Day, I thought it was an old song. I was like, I know this song. Like, isn't this song from the 80s or is maybe this is a cover? Right. Like, it, there was, uh, so I'd either heard it and just didn't realize it was them, or it's like you said, like, it's just, I don't know. It's so classic sounding that it just sounds like it's always existed. Um, so I can totally relate to that for sure. And then on top of that, you know, they they do some really, really cool and interesting melody things that aren't necessarily driven by, you know, these glorious pop hooks. But like you take a, a song like Love Letter Boxes, which does one of my favorite things is when a you have a guitar that's doing like a really intricate sort of ascending or descending lead. Like he does in that part of that song, but then he's also singing on top of that. So it's like, it's that part that's like, and he's, and it's like this descending guitar part, but then he's got a melody that's like almost acting like a counter melody to the guitar. Um, I don't know if it's Ken Stringfellow or John Auer, but it's just, it's a beautiful counter to have the, the vocal and the guitar do those things. And it's having written songs. I know how really hard that is to write two parts like that. But then you get like it, I mentioned coming right along the sparseness of that song. I mean, it's, it's just two vocals and a guitar essentially, but it's just used so perfectly. And it's such a creepy, weird song to when you think about what this record starts with and then to end on that song, which sounds like like sort of almost in the vein of like a Elliot Smith song or something. It's really interesting and got a little blues in it though too yeah that strat i don't know if it's a strat sound but that guitar tone and just some of those little licks he's doing mm-hmm. are almost like start to get into stevie ray vaughn territory just in that guitar part which is it's an interesting guitar part for the vocal because they don't you they wouldn't seemingly put those together um and it's it's actually a clever choice for a guitar tone which is it's a pretty different tone than the rest of the record it really stands out and I think because they're singing in like a deeper register in that song and it's more of a kind of this restrained, mm-hmm. almost um, ominous kind of vocal that that higher, brighter guitar really helps fill it out. So they're not they're never competing with the guitars, which is another thing I noticed on the record that I was impressed with. And that um, just the sounds of their voices and the way they've kind of set the band up, they're always able to cut through. Yeah. Without a problem. But it's not at the cost of like the album sounding raucous, you know, cause when you crank it up, you can hear everything and the drums are loud and the bass is loud and the guitars are loud, but like the vocal is always cutting through. It's never muddy. 
And I, I just think that song is a, a um, kind of a cool little twist on that. The same formula, but it's just some different tones than the rest of the record. And, and along those lines, the thing that I really was like interested in listening to it over and over again recently is the drumming by Mike Musburger. Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting. I don't know how to describe his style. Maybe you as a drummer can kind of get into that a little bit, but it seems like almost haphazard <laughs> in certain yeah. aspects, but it works really well because it adds this like looseness yep. that power pop usually does not have. Usually the rhythm is like very tight and controlled. Like when I think of like jellyfish or, uh, you know, Matthew sweet or something like that, like it's very rhythmic and it's, you know, bouncy, but it's not usually teetering on the edge of like falling apart where there's parts of these songs where he's doing like huge fills and, you know, he comes out of them and he's, he's playing a beat that's totally different from what he was playing, you know, in the same section before there's like, it's really kind of like almost like seventies in that style where it's, it sounds much more like, uh, like of the moment. I don't, I don't know how to describe it exactly. Yeah. Maybe you can get I, into it, but well, he's, I think he's probably the secret, secret weapon of the record. Um, I think he brings, like you said, there's this life to the songs that sometimes pop, uh, can get too formulaic and get too sterile. It can get too programmed even on the rock side. So he's, I don't know. He kind of reminds me a little bit of like how Jay Massis plays drums where it's yeah. lots of fills and like very dynamic. And I think he's more talented probably as a drummer, but um, yeah, there are some amazing fill parts and just, you know, he just is always keeping the song alive. Like it never gets to a point where it feels programmed or predictable there's always this like little edgy there's an edginess and a little bit of a sense of i guess the unexpected just by how the drum performances come off um they sound great yeah um, and yeah i think i don't know i don't know the history of the band after this point but well he left um yeah i could definitely tell like there was a, a really good chemistry on this record and i think he's the uh the the secret weapon just to highlight like how they integrate his interesting drumming into the song. You take a song like solar sister and mm. on like the back half of the verses, they do this thing where they sound like they're like winding up the song where he does this like stutter and the guitars like, like they're like yeah. and they get into the chorus. And it's almost like they're like winding the song up and to, to burst into the chorus. And um, it made me think of that. Of the beginning of that um, helicopter song, where the action is, yeah, he's that, kind of, and that's a seventies style drummer, right. like very active. Yeah, a lot of tom work. Or I'm sorry, tom and and um, snare work. Yeah, I think a song like how she how she uh, lied by living, super dark song. It, you know that song almost sounds like uh, Sunny Day of Real Estate. Hmm. Like it has this really. Um, or engine down, like some of those like pseudo emo kind of, you know, yeah, contemplative, emotional, but still classic rock format bands. And the drums play a huge part in that song. I mean, there's some epic Tom rolls and fills towards the end of that. You told me, you told me. 
Yeah, if you if you layered a little bit more guitar onto that song, it also reminded me a little bit of that band Amusement Parks on Fire. Mm-hmm. Which had you know you just a little layer of like of a little fuzzier you know My Bloody Valentine ish guitar, and you've got that band pretty yep. much. Yeah, the, the other part that I really liked with regards to Mike Musburger's drumming is that the end of Burn and Shine, when they go into that jam, and he just kind of goes crazy with fills and, and stuff. And I also really like that song because I, I imagine this in terms of being a, if it was a record that you would you know put on in terms of an LP, that would end the first half. Yeah, and they have two songs that are six minutes, and one ends the first half of the record, and one ends the second half of the record. Pretty much everything yeah. else is like about four minutes or less. I love the way it just like cuts off because that would be like the end. That'd be like the needle coming off the record, and you're going to the second side. Yeah, I just think that that's a nice little touch because there was yeah, the first time it happened, I was like, "What's going on? Did my CD that's, freeze?" Yeah, I saw the same thing, and I hadn't thought about where it's where it's at in the record. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a cool idea. Um, which, by the way, this record was impossible to find on vinyl for years because it was put out on DGC. So yeah. because of obviously issues with that label not existing anymore and you know rights and all that stuff, it had never been reissued. And then finally, this year, um, Omnivore Recording actually re- re-released the album. Well, the the actually the the LP doesn't come out until october um and then if you want to get the uh double cd that comes out in september that comes with i think um nine like 30 bonus tracks which is like demos and then b-sides and then unreleased songs there's a full band version of coming right along which i'd be curious to hear what that sounds like as a full band. But yeah, you can get uh you can finally get these reissued along with the albums uh before and after this, Dear Twenty Three and Amazing Disgrace are also being reissued. You know, pick those up if you so d- choose. Now let's talk about Jay, maybe some stuff that didn't work on this record. Was there anything that, you know, you found that uh maybe didn't quite work? I mean, this is a record that it's so highly regarded, like I said, to the point where I felt like I just had to own it. Um, right. So I guess this is the most I've ever appreciated it. And I think that's probably because I I had to focus on it to do the show, right? Mm-hmm. And if it was just listening voluntarily like I have in the past, I hadn't connected with it as well as I did now. So... I'm having a hard time putting a finger on why exactly that is. Pretend, uh, potentially there's sections that just become um, a little too long. You know, maybe it's the the burn and shine in the middle of the record and the CD format, and, and I would lose focus. I think there's a couple tracks where the verses are much stronger than the choruses. I, I don't know. I mean, if I scrutinize it, I guess it holds up a lot better than when I don't, which is weird because usually – you know, if I really focus on a record, I can kind of pull apart why it is I don't like it. Obviously, we've done many episodes where we, right. we've done just that. This one seems like the more I scrutinize it, the more I like it because it it does all the things that I like. Right? I mean, it hits all the 
all the checks all the boxes um, that I like about rock music for the most part. It's just that I think there's something about it that it takes a little bit of effort to focus on it. I don't know. Maybe it's the CD format. You know, maybe this is a record where, you know, I grew up listening to a lot of cassettes and a lot of record or uh, albums where you had a, you had to listen to the whole thing because it was so inconvenient to switch, flip around. And you also had a pause in the middle. And I'm, I don't know. I'm wondering if this is just a record that um, isn't uh, served very well by a CD format. It also isn't served well by competing for your attention. It, it takes a little bit of focus. It takes a little bit of um, time, I think, to get into it. And once you do, it sort of sinks in and grabs a hold of you. So, yeah, I, I guess that's my only critique is just that it's not an immediate other than the, the sugary hooks. It's not an immediate like grab you and pull you through the whole thing and keep you engaged every moment unless you really are focused on it. I think it definitely requires a little bit more focus, like you said. I do feel like the first half is stronger than the second half. And that's tough because the first half contains four like amazing songs out of the first six. But the second half if you gave them to another band would be their best songs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're yeah. really good songs, but they just, they don't have the immediate hook that dream all day and flavor of the month. And you know, those songs have, I do have a critique with the track listing though. Um, I feel like definite door should be the opener. That beginning of that song is like the perfect opening track for a, an album. The way it's like they're building, the song, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that didn't end up with the uh, the opening track, but it's tough. There's I a lot agree. Of good, good spots to open it with. It starts so strong, so you know, a track like "Lights Out" is probably on its own a fine enough track, but it's you know, the tenth song and it's a little droney. Um, yeah. And just that the, the album gets dark in the second half and some of that material is really good. It's just such a, a departure from the brightness of the first half of the record that I'm, I'm with you. Maybe some sequencing would have helped here. Maybe dream all day being a little bit like maybe track three um, and space out some of the, the hookier stuff would, would help. There's definitely something about it as a whole that, like I said, it, it, it doesn't hold my attention as much as it as you would think it would. Yeah, I don't know what that is. I definitely found myself when I cranked it was like, yes. Yep. I had the same reaction. Like when I turned it up louder, it really, I engaged with it a lot more. When I turned it down, I know there was something about it. It just becomes easier to ignore or miss yeah. what's special about it. I don't know what that is. It's a weird phenomenon uh, because I drove a lot uh recently like out of town visiting family so i had this in the car as a cd which i know you don't have, don't know how to do that anymore but uh you know and i put i just kept it in the cd player and there were a couple of times when i just cranked it while i was on the highway and it sounded awesome and then i would turn it down a couple of times for like a conversation and i would completely lose track of the album yeah i don't know it's a weird phenomenon i don't know how to quantify that experience do need to you know mention that it was Don Fleming, the famous producer, who did work on this record, 
So he brought out a really interesting sound with regards to, you know, I, I, from what I know of Deer 23, they weren't quite this rocking with the guitars. No. So, you know, I don't know if that's them trying to adjust for the marketplace in 1993 or, or if he pushed them that way or if the record label did or what, what have you. It works. I mean, they show it off. They can, they can definitely, I don't want to say shred, but, you know, they can play. There's a lot of interesting guitar stuff that's going on. Yeah, there are some notable guitar solos on, on the record, too. Um, in terms of, uh, there's one where they both kind of play together, which is kind of cool. They do some stuff where they riff off the melodies. I mean, there's a couple of tunes where the, the guitar kind of becomes the hook um, in some sections. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I do like the guitar work quite a bit. Another band I thought of when I listened to this was, um, I think it was the Harmonies, but uh, they get there's some shades of the Jayhawks in here, like on the yeah. the rock side of the Jayhawks. I think that's you know very similar. And I just back to what you said for a second ago. I love when a band like plays a, a verse and a chorus and has a really defined hook, and then duplicates that on a guitar. Mm-hmm. that's just ear candy for me. And so when they do that, I was like, yes, do that again, please. Yeah. The, there is a definite, like you mentioned the Jayhawks, but that's a solid one in terms of just those, like, it's funny, you know, listening to this, I, I could not pick out, I don't know their voices well enough. Whereas when I listen to the Jayhawks, I can pick out whether it's Mark Olson or Gary Loris singing with the, the yeah. lead part. So it was, it was much more like undefined as to who was doing what for everything. Guitar playing, you know, I don't know if Ken Stringfellow is playing the leads or if it's John Auer, if they're playing them back and forth or what have you. It was just kind of nice to just like let it, you know, go and not worry about who's doing what. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I was thinking about this was this had no shot in like make breaking through 1993. No. I mean, what, what a weird record for 1993. I mean, that's, that's Pearl Jam versus. I know that's, <laughs> that's just, this, it, this record's know. like maybe three, four years ahead of its time. I think. Yeah. At least it needed to be after the grunge wave. Yeah. You know, after Alice in Chains and, and Soundgarden and all those bands, it needed, it needed more space being released right dead smack in the middle of all that was just, you know, Matthew's, I they probably looked at Matthew Sweet with, you know, girlfriend and I've been waiting and thought, oh, we've got a chance, you know, with the record label. Uh, but 
I, I said this to my wife, Katie, when we were driving in the car and listening to this. I'm like, Matthew Sweet in like 1992 or 1993 was like a, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed, intense looking dude who sang sweet melodies and had anime videos and, you know. Yeah. Like it was the right sort of combination to break through. It was easy to market. Right. For sure. Whereas this just, I mean, you look at the photo in the, in the CD case, like they look like dorky band guys. Like they're, and he had, he had that like kind of, there was a little bit of like a retro 60s, 70s. Yeah. Thing going on through the 90s and i think from pulp fiction probably started that and uh matthew sweet could tap into that a little bit too um mm-hmm. whereas this band doesn't at all i mean yeah they some you know there's some influence there from the beatles and badfinger and stuff but they yeah. sound more modern i think than matthew sweet does i guess yes so were the album better ep decent single what do you think it's a worthy album. I don't. I don't have any bad songs on here. I mean, there's there's a couple that, you know, are definite album tracks. I guess I. It's 48 minutes. I wouldn't mind if it was 40 minutes or right. 38 minutes. Uh, it's just it's a classic, like to me, cheap trick, big star kind of record where it's it should be under 40 minutes and yeah. So it's just a little long for me too. But uh, it, it's a worthy album. I mean, I think it's ahead of its time. It stood the test of time. It sounds fantastic. Um, I would recommend anybody who hasn't heard it or those who are revisiting it, crank it, get a good you know, pair of speakers or headphones and, and turn it up because uh, it sounds so much better loud than it does at a quiet volume. I agree with you. Worthy album, play it loud. I could probably trim two songs just to get it to... 40 minutes like you said you know or maybe i would put it this way i'd cut maybe a minute off a of burn and shine of the jamming yeah. and then yep. maybe lose you know lights out or something mm-hmm. uh, that's four minutes there you trimmed like five minutes right there you can put it on put it as a b-side but uh yeah overall it's just such a strong record especially the first five or six songs i mean those are some bands don't even make it through their, you know, multi-album career writing that many catchy songs and they just knock them out <laughs> one after the other. It's nuts. So, yeah, two were the albums for Frosting on the Beater by the Posies. Sincere apologies to Scott for um <laughs> covering <laughs> two records Sorry, he didn't bud. want us to cover. Don't worry. When I'm sure you'll pay us back when your 12 month review is up and throw something at us, we'll completely be floored by and caught off guard. I think he picked Mr. Bungle last he time. He did. So. so I could understand there being a divide between Mr. Bungle and the Posies. I can understand that. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes and, of course, uh, Patreon. That's where you go to. Do all the fun stuff, bonus content, vote on polls, that kind of thing. Patreon.com forward slash dig me out. For Jay, I'm Tim, and we're out. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out 
and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com. And three, two, one. Jay, this week we um, we did a little bit of uh, rescue, I guess you'd say. We um, we uh, we acted like one of those uh, Animal Planet shows where they go out into the tundra and save a, a whale stuck in an ice. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know what. You know those like Animal Planet shows where they're like doctors in the Sahara, or uh, you know, there's like they'll rescue some turtles from the Galapo- Galapagos or Galapagos. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> Do you want to restart this episode <laughs> on the Galapagos? All right, three. The, the Galapagos. Two, three, two. I'm starting over. <laughs> One.